0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about just one more thing. You see, there's something that's been, that's been bothering me, and I, I just have a couple questions about it. I'll get back to what I mean by the title in a minute. It is truth in advertising, uh, except for the one more portion. I've got several questions, and I want to answer them in this particular inappropriate conversation in the form of questions. See, I probably have avoided the issue of immigration and questions related to immigration policy for far too long, and I'm going to have to address the issue in the form of questions. I'm afraid. But first, I've got another question related to the current opening in the U.S. Supreme Court. And it comes down to this. What does it mean for a shortlisted Supreme Court candidate or potential or nominee, Brett Kavanaugh in this case, to suggest that the President of the United States cannot be indicted or that, in his opinion, the Congress should act to make sure that the U.S. President isn't distracted by having to answer legal questions And challenges. I asked the question because for me, it seems like our form of government is one of the best forms of government in the world. And as the cliche goes, maybe one of the best forms of government in the history of the world for managing exactly that. We have checks and balances. We have a balance in the way power is shared. And we have clear succession planning, not just for a permanent change, like the resignation of a president. Nixon in the 70s, for example, but also for a temporary change. Reagan in the 80s, where it was necessary for a few days for Reagan to recuperate from gunshot wounds. We have a system in place that if the president was so distracted by lawsuits, civil or criminal proceedings, or other questions related to corruption, that there's nothing stopping the president from stepping aside for a few weeks or even months. Balance of power would go from the president to the vice president and then back again when the president was capable of resuming full focus on his duties toward the office, not unlike when Reagan was hospitalized and unconscious for a while there, again, in the early 1980s. But to suggest that the president of the United States cannot possibly be indicted raises a question for me that I first took a shot at answering on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page with a line of thinking that that goes something like this. People who believe the president of the United States cannot be indicted because uh, he is president, and it would be disruptive or something like that. You may think you're offering a political perspective on corruption charges, which, by the way, tend to be what the founders of this nation had in mind when they called out high crimes and misdemeanors. Not the kind of thing that our founding fathers wanted us to turn the other eye about and ignore for two, three, four years or eight years. They've set up a system in the first couple of articles of the Constitution for us to do something about it proactively. But it's worse. You are saying, in this point of view, albeit I'll, I'll otherwise political point of view, that nothing can be done if the president personally ordered, say, very young refugee children who'd been taken from their parents to be delivered to the White House and raped repeatedly by him. If the president cannot be indicted, like some you know, judicial nominees might suggest, or at least have nodded in agreement with and looked the other way, then perhaps Trump was right when he boasted that he could shoot someone on a New York City street and face no consequences. Now, then, 2016, he meant face no consequences at the polls, and perhaps it was because he knew that a fix was in. Perhaps not. We'll see. But now, with a Supreme Court vacancy, he may need something far worse than that. So the question to me is, allowing a man who is at least a subject, if not a target of a criminal investigation, a treason-related investigation, depending on how you look at it, depending on where the facts take us, to allow him to personally select the judges who could, or would, dismiss the very case against him for even the flimsiest of reasons, if not for no credible reason at all, that's about the worst potential conflict of interest in in the entire history of this country. Maybe even going back to even before there was a United States of America or a Constitution, even before the Articles of Confederation. So when I talk about having questions, I mean some of these questions might actually be leading questions, where it's obvious from the way the question's being asked that I kind of know the answer. In some cases, though, I've got legitimate questions, and I'll leave it up to you to figure out which one's which. I just think that there are better questions out there than the ones that are being asked. And for every person on the political left who is so obsessed or focused on something like Roe v.ersus Wade, not that that's a terrible thing to be focused on, but there are better questions here that are related to ongoing investigations and conflict of interest. And it makes far more sense now. To say that we're not going to fill a Supreme Court vacancy by the person who is under investigation and upon whom some legal decisions may go all the way to that court. Well, that's a much better argument than anything that Mitch McConnell or anybody else raised in 2016. I thought those arguments in 2016 were spurious at best. I talked about them in a blog post in July of 2016 and in the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, number 188, released in September of 2016 but neither one of those you know points of view that I raised then hold a candle to this one this is literally judge shopping as i've heard it called allowing somebody to pick the person who will ultimately decide whether a case can proceed against them well you wonder how somebody could even suggest that such a thing might be a good idea with a straight face and you have to wonder how somebody who has suggested that in the past turned out to be the nominee for the open vacancy created by Anthony Kennedy just this summer. So I'm going to ask some questions. The questions may tend toward a line of thinking that says, I'm going to be confrontational and kind of demand answers. And I'm going to try to resist forcing any, any of them here. It literally is true that some things have just been bothering me. And I'm of two minds on some aspects of the issue. It's almost like I've been talking to my wife in recent days and, you know, I have some questions.
1: I've heard stories. She's been praying on ships
0: and settlements for near ten years. Never leaves any survivors. No survivors? Then where do the stories come from, I wonder? Of course, a lot of this line of dialogue ties in to our different drummer that I'll address right up front here at the beginning of the show with Peter Falk. Growing up, I don't know that I would have thought of myself as the biggest fan of actor Peter Falk, but just fair to say that over the years, the man's you know style just grew on me. Enough so that at one point I went out and borrowed, I believe from the library... Or maybe I bought the book and then later traded it in. He's got a uh, fascinating and really high quality, in my opinion, biography autobiography. It's more of a series of vignettes, actually, called "Just One More Thing," which um, this is an intentional callback to that. The subscript is "Stories from My Life" by Peter Falk, and I want to let the blurb on an, on Amazon tell a little bit of the story, provide some of the you know the basic biographical information. ...for this Different Drummer segment... ...because the naming of this episode... ...and the Different Drummer is sort of a recommendation... ...to say, hey, if you'd like a quick read... ...that's a little bit inside baseball... ...a little bit biography... ...and a little bit of just sheer humor... ...Peter Falk's book does that. It jumps around. He's not trying to create a narrative. He's literally... ...telling stories. Here's the blurb from Amazon.com. In just one more thing... ...Peter Falk, award-winning actor takes us behind the scenes into his professional and private life. Starting in Hartford, where he worked as a management analyst for the Connecticut State uh, Budget Bureau, Falk was no more successful than that at than he was in earlier attempts to work for the CIA. He then turned to an old college interest, acting. Falk came to prominence in 1956 in the successful off-Broadway revival of The Iceman, Cometh. Although he worked continuously for the next three years... A theatrical agent advised him not to expect much work in motion pictures because of his glass eye. Surgeons had removed his right eye, along with a malignant tumor, when he was three years old. But in 1958, Falk landed his first movie role, Murder Incorporated, and was nominated for an Oscar. A Pocket Full of Miracles garnered his second Oscar nomination... But it was through his collaboration with filmmaker John Cassavetes that Falk entered into his most creative period in 1970, when movies such as A Woman Under the Influence helped launch the independent film movement as we know it today. Through television, however, Falk reached his widest audience, portraying the inimitable Lieutenant Columbo through the 1970s and later, and winning four Emmys along the way. Wikipedia says this, Peter Michael Falk was an American actor known for his role as Lt. Columbo in the long-running television series. They list the runtime for that TV show as 1968 to 2003. He won four primetime innings from 1972 all the way to 1990, and a Golden Globe Award in 1973 for the role. He first starred as Columbo in two 90-minute TV pilots. The first with Gene Barry in 1968 and the second with Lee Grant in 1971. The show was then aired as part of the NBC Mystery Movie from 1971 to 1978, and then later moved to ABC. As I recall, the NBC Mystery Movie would have been a rotating set of, I'm going to guess, if I recall from memory, Sunday night, where some weeks you had a 90-minute episode of Columbo, but other weeks it was McLeod, Dennis Weaver as a cowboy, McMillan and Wife, uh, featuring Rock Hudson and Susie, Susan St. James. And other sort of again, Madigan I think was part of that kind of lineup where you knew you were going to get a Sunday Night NBC mystery, but it wasn't. It wasn't always Columbo. Back to Wikipedia. Director William Friedkin said of Fox's role in his film The Brink's Job, nineteen seventy eight. Peter had a great range from comedy to drama. He could break your heart, or he could make you laugh. One of the ways he made me laugh was an article that appeared originally in an interview with Cigar Aficionado magazine with Arthur Max, where Falk, talking about his glass eye, says, I remember once in high school, the umpire called me out at third base when I was sure I was safe. I got so mad, I took out my glass eye, handed it to him, and said, Try this. It got such a laugh you wouldn't believe. Peter Falk's sense of humor, often dry, but also folksy and homespun in its own way at the same time. By looking at the credits that Falk accumulated over the years, it may be true that Columbo was the mainstay. He talked a little bit about it when he was referring to traveling internationally and, and kind of being you know, well-known. Falk said this, The show was all over the world. I've been to little villages in Africa, with maybe one TV set, and little kids will come running up to me shouting, Columbo to Columbo! Singer Johnny Cash recalled acting in one episode, and although he was not an experienced actor, he writes in his autobiography, Peter Falk was good to me. I I wasn't at all confident about handling a dramatic role, and every day, he helped me in all kinds of little ways. For me, maybe... Two or three of his most impactful performances, at least the one I would cite as the movie performance that I think of most, was Falk playing more or less himself. He appeared as Peter Falk in Wings of Desire, later in the movie The Player, and then again in a semi-sequel to Wings of Desire called Far Away So Close. Now it's not 100% true that Falk was playing himself in the German film, but he was Playing, he was being asked to act as if he was playing himself if he were an angel that centuries earlier had chosen voluntarily to fall from grace in order to experience what life was like as a human, as a person. Two main thoughts I have as I wrap up a short, different drummer segment. One is that I'm not 100% convinced in my mind that the Columbo character leapt into existence with that TV pilot in 1968 I always think of Colombo, and my memory drifts back to the 1955 French film Diabolique. I spoke about this in Inappropriate Conversations number 152, anticipating the bang from late in October 2014. The detective character in that film, you know, coming out 13 years before uh, Colombo ever saw a TV screen, played by Charles Vanel, has many of the characteristics that would come to fore later in English. Through Peter Falk's acting, so that's kind of you know one thought I've got, and the other one is just this notion of asking questions and letting things bother you and forcing people to take into account. In the intro to this, I shared a little clip from *The Pirates of the Caribbean*, the second movie in the series, I believe, where people were you know sharing the ghost stories about uh, Davy Jones and and talking about how um, how Davy Jones attacks and there's never any survivors and. The kind of questions I want to ask are the same kind of questions that Jack Sparrow asked in that film. No survivors. Where were the stories come from then? In
1: 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV.
0: It makes sense with a different drummer that's focused on a world-famous and beloved TV character that I might be introducing a new promo this week for a podcast called Forgotten TV. I first heard and encountered this podcast through a Forgotten Films podcast. The most recent episode at the time I'm recording was an episode about Doc Savage, Man of Bronze, 1976 theatrical film that I can remember seeing in the theaters. And actually can remember for a couple of years after that being really disappointed that what seemed to be an inevitable sequel had never come. I've got friends, uh, current and formerly on the Starbase 66 podcast, who also have fond memories of Doc Savage as a character, perhaps remembering the movie as I remember it. And when I went to listen to um, two fans talk about that film in the Forgotten Film podcast, turns out one of them has his own podcast called Forgotten TV. And I liked what I heard enough on the first podcast to jump over and give this other one a try for the first time. That's the promo I shared in the outro of The Different Drummer, and I really wanted to specifically cite one episode that at least you know, was right in my wheelhouse. There's several episodes at the podcast website, www.forgotten.tv, but the one I want to cite was the episode released in November last year. It's the Forgotten TV episode about creepy TV monster movies of the 70s, and does a good job talking about The Night Stalker and uh, Dark Shadows. Gargoyles, in particular, was the one I was interested in, and the Trilogy of Terror episode, Amelia, that everyone thinks of immediately when you hear the words Trilogy of Terror, if you understand horror TV of the 1970s to even the slightest degree. But what really brought me in was the way that the podcast framed up the idea of made for TV movies in general, the ABC movie of the week in particular. And kind of walk through several examples, some in some pretty good detail. It reminded me of uh, my first year of this show, Inappropriate Conversations, number 42, January of 2011, the morning after for Made for TV Movies. So I'm happy to bring this promo and put it into the mix. The latest episode of Forgotten TV is about time travel. I like it when the show deals with more than one thing, but more than one thing where there's a thematic link. Um, Forgotten TV is something I'm going to continue to pursue, even when he's remembering shows that I never saw.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Taylor. And Taffy. And her Dan. And we want to talk to you about a great opportunity.
0: Just <laughs> an infomercial? Or a timeshare. <laughs> <laughs> say, this is an infomercial.
1: Yeah. We want to talk to you about Pride 48 this year. Yay. The annual Pride. Yay. The annual Pride 48 Expo is coming back. And it is August twenty fourth through the twenty sixth of two thousand eighteen, and it's not in our usual place. We're going someplace new. Taffy, where are we going? Um, we are going to the one and only New Orleans, Louisiana. That's right. Ooh-hoo. Now At for the Dan, Holiday Inn Superdome. Yes. Did she say that correctly? Is it New Orleans or New Orleans? New Orleans, or is it Nolans? No. I, I'm not. I'm not proper Southern enough to, or proper Cajun enough to say Nolins. So no, I would yeah. just go with the New Orleans. New Orleans. Okay. New Orleans. All right. So and it is. It is going to be a lot of fun. It is going to be as we said, August twenty fourth to twenty sixth at the Holiday Inn Superdome. We uh, what 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 can we expect at the Pride Forty Eight Expo? I think Rodan put it best when he said, "It's a Pride Forty Eight Petting Zoo." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a twenty five dollars, almost like an enrollment admission. The fee is is that, but it gets you into forty eight hours of nonstop entertainment, jokes, and beauty. I mean, really, you can't put a price like, tag on that. Yeah. No. It's like the pimp cover. <laughs> <laughs> So you have to pay the pimp. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. No, no, he, Big I don't Fatty know. has a name. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well. So and if you're not listening to podcasts, there's beautiful architecture, and there's tours, and there's graveyards, and there's some other things too. Um sex clubs, what? alcohol, and probably a lot of jazz. And brunch. And pretty it. much the definition of debauchery is yes. all down the Bourbon Street. Yes. And and we have learned that in New Orleans. I will eat popcorn off a dirty chair in a gross bar <laughs> without being so, scared <laughs> without no no willingly it, i i was looking forward to doing it because the popcorn was that damn good in that and that so yeah. so if you like to drink if you like to eat if you like to be around wonderful people in this in this crazy world of podcasting please go to pride48.com And sign up to register for this wonderful Pride 48 Expo. As we said before, August 24th through the 26th at the Holiday Inn Superdome.
0: Details can be found
1: at pride48.com.
0: Awesome. Woohoo. All right. Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) For now, though, let's hit a set of questions. I'm walking lightly. And I'm walking lightly for a few reasons. I'm wording some of these as questions because I legitimately don't know the answer. Some as questions because I kind of know the answer because this process has forced me to do more research than I'd ever done before. But some of them, the questions themselves are a little bit contra- confrontational. But I've got to be careful because I have never personally lived that close to the southern US border. So I'm kind of aware of the fact that there may actually be legitimate challenges. In say a 100 mile cut that you know follows along from uh, at the very least California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, and maybe further. You know, I think that South Florida has a different set of challenges, but I've never lived there either. So I do come to this with questions rather than answers, and a point of view that is somewhat tentative, because I haven't necessarily walked the walk. Here's the thing, though: most of the people that I encounter. Who have really strong opinions about this also have never lived anywhere near places like Brownsville, Texas, or Del Rio, Texas, or for that matter, Tucson, Arizona. They haven't walked the walk either. But in the interest of being deferential, let me ask this, let me ask a question first and kind of give a a point counterpoint. How could the number of immigrants who are coming here illegally be so large if we want to dismiss it? As a minor, small-scale event, you know. So, I think it's important for us to understand that there there clearly are a lot of people crossing the U.S. border illegally, and that that has to have at least some impacts on social services, but maybe social services in a far more indirect way than than some would suggest. We'll get to questions surrounding that too. But then there is a counterpoint to this that asks the question of how could this be? A past administration issue, something that could be laid at the feet of people named Bush or Clinton or Obama, if the scope has just hit us now. So I'll raise some specific questions. I don't like blame being cast on President prior to Trump. I guess would be the way I'd word it. So you can anticipate some leading questions, but not every type of question is necessarily going to be leading. So let's answer this one. Are we experiencing a net outflow of undocumented immigrants to Mexico? In other words, is the number of people crossing the border coming to the U.S. less than the number of people who are going away from the U.S.? And signs strongly point to yes there. And this, I think, will catch a lot of people who know me, a lot of people that I know, probably very much by surprise. Because there's this popular notion that it's the other way around. That, you know, to hear the Trump administration describe it, We're literally drowning in illegal immigration. But a PolitiFact.com article posted through Wisconsin by Eric Litka just uh, April of this year, right around the time that the Trump administration blew up its zero tolerance policy and created the crisis of children separated from their parents that we're facing today, with a headline that kind of provides a potential answer to this question Yes, we are experiencing a net outflow of illegal undocumented workers. ...from America back to Mexico. In other words, we are having more people return to Mexico than we are coming in. And if this were to you know, continue um, unabated, then our illegal immigration problem would reverse-engineer itself and potentially completely disappear. I realize that sounds naive. It is absolutely counter-narrative. And I don't know whether I want to put too much stock in any assumptions made around this question... But the answer to the question does seem to be yes. In other words, we are not facing a crisis that is bigger than any sort of crisis at the border that we might have faced 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. When presidential candidates like Reagan and George H.W. Bush and President Reagan and later President Bush had a much more um, broad minded attitude, a drive high in steering begin with the end-in-mind approach to addressing what for them was a much larger issue than anything that the Trump administration is blowing up about today. If this is the facts, what does it mean for so many Americans? And to be fair, it's almost all of the white nationalist camp, but it's probably not exclusively this quasi-racist group of people uh, to disbelieve facts of that nature. And I tender this a little bit by just thinking to myself that Just because the flow has slowed or even begun to flow in the opposite direction in a big-picture sense doesn't mean that there aren't still real impacts to consider. I guess it's in my nature to resist assuming that even a small amount of legal asylum-seeking people could have no impact. And how are we managing the impacts that we have today? And surely there's a better answer than refusing to try, but maybe we could be managing things better than we are today. So let's talk about a few things that we do know and sort of get past the white nationalist disbelieve-any-facts kind of mentality and just put a few things out there that I think we can latch on to as true. In April of this year, after a very quiet test last year, if you want to call it that, the Trump administration put into motion a so-called zero-tolerance policy and began forcibly removing children from the custody of non-citizens who crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. Also, more than 2,000 kids, probably more than 3,000 kids, have been separated from their parents in this manner, with no clear process for identifying the children, being able to connect them back to the parents, and presumably not a very solid plan for returning children to their parents. What do we know about this policy and American jobs being lost or threatened? Well... Here's the one job I know has been lost or threatened, actually lost in this case, as a result of Trump immigration policies and illegal immigration in particular. Rob Rogers was fired as the political cartoonist for the Pittsburgh Post cadet by the Trump supporting publisher of that newspaper for depicting Trump snatching a kid from a couple at the border. That is one solid, clear example of a job lost because of this issue. And it ties into what I've spoken before, November 2012, Inappropriate Conversations number 105. I called it press coverage, and what I said at the time was the most, most powerful person in any newspaper office is the publisher, and without knowing enough to call it out this way back then, it's still true now, the publisher is the most likely person in a newsroom to be a Trumpster. For other examples of jobs lost, I have a question about why there are any crops in any fields not being efficiently harvested today by Americans who, thanks to Trump and his policies, have these positions sitting somewhat, if not largely vacant. And um, why are Americans not just filling those jobs? These are necessary jobs. I'm not sure that I would call them good and well-paying, but they're necessary jobs harvesting crops. And yet... Trump administration policies have made it very difficult for farmers to hire the amount of workers at harvest time that they've historically been able to hire. So we've got an example of a political cartoonist who definitely is a person who lost his job over the issue of illegal immigration, and then I've got a whole lot of other jobs which are sitting vacant and that have not been filled. So in many ways, if this is a job creation strategy, it begs the question of why those jobs are that have been recently created, haven't been fully filled. Then, the other thing I want to sort of ask, kind of hypothetically, not so hypothetically, as the GOP leadership and a lot of GOP followers are so quick to try to blame Democrats in the House and Senate, or the Supreme Court, or past presidential administrations, not just Obama and Clinton, but also Bush, In between which political party is in a position to enact new laws, the kind of laws this president would sign, who is currently the minority throughout all branches of government today? It is, again, actually, factually, obviously true. The Republicans are currently in the White House and control both the House and Senate, and the conservative wing of the U.S. Supreme Court already had a narrow majority, and that majority, at least in theory, could become larger inevitably will become larger at some point over the next two or three years, regardless of what happens to legal court cases that seem to be proceeding in the direction of at least the Trump campaign, if not Trump himself. Some of this finger-pointing and name-calling, I think we can make this, can make this very simple, and I, I like the way that it was summed up by a particular person on Twitter named, or at least going by the name, Janet Snakehole. I'm not a follower on Twitter of Janet Snakehole, but I did encounter her uh, her point of view in a retweet. Basically, she quotes Trump, actually re- retweets Trump, saying this. The Democrats are forcing the breakup of families at the border with their horrible and cruel legislative agenda. Any immigration bill must have full funding for the wall. End catch and release. Visa lottery. And chain... And go to merit-based immigration. Go for it. Win. Typical Trump dialect, for want of a better word. Janet Snakehole's answer is this. I see you've reached the I don't want to hit the children, but you make me hit the children when you don't do what I say. Chapter in the Handbook for Abusive Husbands. So my question, is this fair? Or more to the point, how is this not a fair retort? Is Trump and his support from Stephen Miller and Jeff Sessions little more than an extortion racket to force taxpayers to pay for a wall that Trump said would be fully covered without a dime of taxpayer money? Before you answer, consider this report from June 16th and think about how carefully any nuanced meaning um, you might find between the definition of concepts like negotiation and extortion from kate sullivan at uh, cnn politics this is from june 16th 2018 the website is amp.cnn.com slash cnn and it basically goes to uh it answers the question of whether i'm being unfair to trump by suggesting that he is using the separation of families at the border as a way of trying to get his wall paid for by u.s taxpayers President Donald Trump suggested Saturday that he is using his administration's separation of families at the U.S. border as a negotiating tool to get Democrats to cave on his immigration demands, which include funding for a border wall, curbing legal immigration to the U.S., and tightening the rules for border enforcement. Trump again falsely blamed Democrats for his administration's actions and said they could put a stop to the family separations by working with Republicans in Congress. Nearly 2,000, at the time, Immigrant children were separated from parents over a period of about six weeks from April and May, according to the Department of Homeland Security. Trump wrote in a tweet Democrats can fix their forced family breakup at the border by working with Republicans on new legislation for a change. So clearly, if the people who knee jerk respond with cries of fake news every time they hear something that they don't like or that they find personally or politically embarrassing, Would like to suggest that the question that I just asked was some sort of fake news or spin. I think the answer is obviously false. From Trump's own tweets. Is this little more than an extortion racket to force taxpayers to pay for a wall that Trump said would be fully covered by creating a crisis of separating kids from parents in a way that he is in no way required or mandated to do? This is not just a rhetorical question. And I think that's maybe one of the ways that you can almost separate who we ought to be listening to on either side of the political spectrum and from within either one of these political parties and who we should ignore. We should ignore the people who have what I would describe as a a zero degree ability to exercise empathy. Can we ignore the emotional signs of trauma from very young children taken from their parents in this manner? This isn't speculation. I based it on a post that I shared on inappropriate conversations. Uh, June 19th. It was written in June 18th and shared on Facebook by Dr. Newbrand of Colorado. She documented her experiences of encountering um, children who are placed with foster families after these separations occur. And anyone who can ignore the signs of emotional trauma from this is probably somebody that we don't want to be well, we probably shouldn't put much stock in their point of view. Their lack of empathy is closer to that of a sociopath than that of anyone with genuine political leadership. Will the creators of the very problems we now say, perhaps in the -the over-the-top presumptions, that we already fear. Disaffected, dangerous youth, born of abused immigrants, roaming our streets, terrorizing our towns, you know, The people who suggest that we should be afraid of these things seem to be actively engaged in creating those very problems. Oh, maybe not this week or next week. But if you look at what happened in Romania under Ceausescu, and not the point when Ceausescu basically banned all abortion and contraceptive and tried to force his country into a a mass of, of childbirth, including a lot of unwanted pregnancies delivered into childbirth. If you don't know what happened 15 years after that, then you probably should go back and reread the, uh, the original Freakonomics book by uh, Stephen, Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. I cited Levitt as a different drummer in the first year of inappropriate conversation. But if you bring in a group of children, rip them from their families, traumatize them, isolate them in a country where they're likely to continue to be vilified if this Trump era doesn't take an about-face and do so very quickly... What do we think these kids are going to grow up to be in this country? I've got kind of a personal notion that you're always going to resent the people who resent you. And I'm not sure that this is a level of resentment that we would... If if it wasn't being sort of temporarily halted at 3,000 kids, had this thing continued to what might have been a logical end of 60,000 kids or 70,000 kids, I think we'd be asking for real trouble because... The Trump administration doesn't seem to have a great way of returning these kids to their parents, even at the point that the parents themselves are having their calls for asylum rejected and are being deported back to the countries where they came from. It seems like in most cases those parents are leaving here being deported without their children. What are those children going to do? Even if we allow them to live here and give them a path to citizenship? This is an extremely traumatic event. So... Does a specific law mandate family separation in the detention of minors? The fact-checking sites say no. Snopes, for example, says no on this one. Does anything say that Obama-era guidelines are what is behind this policy decision? No. Those refer to unaccompanied minors crossing the border. And to me, that leads me to an interesting sort of personal story that ties out to kind of my mantra on how I choose to handle Facebook. I may get to this just a little bit later, but first let me kind of bring up sort of something that I encountered unintentionally in my personal social media life. There are people in my personal life from my past that I don't engage with when it comes to political arguments. They have certainly proven to me over the last few years that their point of view is uh, firmly entrenched. Nothing that I could say could possibly address it or correct it. And so I've ignored these people. And I've been, you know, uh, on the receiving end of at least snarkiness, if not personal attack by some of these folks before, but I've got a, a personal mantra that I just don't unfriend anybody. But not unfriending somebody in a Facebook scenario is not the same thing as remaining consistently engaged. And for a lot of the time, I just let these people be who they are and kind of isolate them and remind myself that some people aren't worth the words. There are exceptions. When somebody says something that's clearly patently false and easy to correct, I still feel like it's an act of grace on my part to make sure that they know that what they're sharing is absolutely not true and proven to be false. I don't do it in a confrontational way. It's not a gotcha. It's just sort of a, hey, you need to know. This is, this is important. I think you want me to tell you. And, even then, I've got some people in my world who are toxic enough that I don't even bother correcting them when I know that what they're saying is false, because maybe deep down I have a suspicion that they know it's false too, and the last thing in the world they want is to be called out or corrected on it. And I've had a couple of those experiences where you just say, well, listen, if somebody's lying and knows they're lying, what's the point of telling them that they're lying? But my problem was one of those sort of lies. These uh, things about this being all Obama's fault and Trump having no choice and the laws, the law, and all this other sort of stuff. I did. I wanted to ignore it, but I couldn't. And part of the reason I decided that I couldn't was that a direct personal family member was engaged in this conversation and had already been saying things like, "This is nothing new. It's just the media blowing it out of proportion." and and, again, trying to find a right way to speak in such a way that it isn't starting a fight, which is not the idea. The idea is asking the questions and getting the answers and asking more questions and getting a dialogue going. Not starting a fight, but if if this has been going on all this time, if this was happening under eight years of Obama and before that eight years of Bush and before that eight years of Clinton, why are we just now building tent cities? Why have we only just now gotten to the point? With the number of children taken from the arms of their parents has become so explosive that we don't have enough places to house them. So I felt like if I got family members who were not recognizing that the, the quick and aggressive establishment of these camps to concentrate these kids together is both new and a problem, then maybe I can no longer ignore it. So when that family member, that loved one, didn't just like this post full of lies but loved it, to use Facebook iconology, I decided I had to speak. And again, it wasn't, I don't think it was confrontational. This is false, what you've posted. It conveniently forgets the meaning and context of words like unaccompanied and 20 days. And then just to try to soften it, I said, yes, Obama, Bush, and Clinton administrations made terrible choices. I voted against Obama twice, against Bush once, and against Clinton twice. But I see no justification for taking any of their ideas to some ideological extreme. We should be avoiding that. The answer I got back? Well, it's really sad that you could take time to write these two dissertations, but you can't take the time to like my mother's picture. What is wrong with you? You only care about making sure everyone knows you're right. Pathetic! Exclamation point. Being called pathetic for basically saying, Hey, you might want to fact check this article. This information is false. And... I'm not biased. I'm not sitting here in some sort of pro-Obama, anti-Trump camp. I've got a lot of issues with Trump. I had some issues with Obama, but that's not really the point I was trying to make. Even if you think all these policies go directly back to the policies of the Obama administration, if they were wrong, why would you magnify them? So I just politely told her that she didn't understand how Facebook worked. And then if she assumes that every time she posts something, it pops up on my wall, She's missed a lot of information about Facebook and the way they've updated the, just the way their website works. It may be true that I only see 10% of the things she posts on her wall, and some of it's random. In this particular case, I probably only saw this one because my sister didn't just like it. She loved it. I don't know what you do about that, except to call out that, yes, I've actually been called pathetic in an exchange over this very issue. So, back to questions. Is this situation different from the state temporarily taking custody of children who were in a vehicle at the time of a drunk driving accident caused by a drunk parent, or a presumably drunk parent? That's the argument. In fact, it was one of the arguments that at least reflected some intelligent thought coming from this part of the country. But I still tried to refute the argument. Because even though I have lots of questions, some of the questions I have have really easy answers. Try this one. Would we be outraged if the state couldn't figure out how to reunite the accused drunk-driving parent if it all turned out to be a misunderstanding. If, for example, the blood-alcohol test came back negative and the driving issue was something genuinely medical, and the police then, after realizing that this had been a mistake and should be handled through medical treatment rather than incarceration, the police now couldn't even be bothered, couldn't even be forced by a court, To give the children back to the parent? Couldn't even find the children that they'd taken from the parent at the time that they leveled the drunk driving charges against the parent? First off, drunk driving's a felony. The first time crossing a border in the wrong place while seeking asylum is at best a misdemeanor. So there's a difference there. But as a judge rightly said, in what can only be described as an angry temper from the court, basically called out that you actually get a receipt when you get booked into jail. This, you know, potentially drunk parrot got booked into jail. I'm quite sure she she ended up with documentation on how to get reunited with her purse when it was all said and done. How do we disconnect the current administration's adoption of a zero-tolerance policy from the consequences of that policy? I engaged in what clearly seemed to be pointless conversations with old friends because I wanted an indirect way of saying, what the hell, people? This hasn't been, quote, going on like this for years, unquote, if we are building tent camps now to concentrate the refugee children. How do you reason with people who can't understand that plainly obvious concept? You see, if people who've been charged with crimes are still allowed to apply for asylum, as I understand they are, that's the law then why is the government coercing deals that trade that right in in order for the families to have any hope of being reunited with their children? Or are all these do this or else you won't see your kids again stories all false about getting people to sign away any rights to claim asylum? And if those stories are false, prove it. Because those stories come from eyewitness accounts of reporters, lawyers, and others who have had those face-to-face conversations with the parents of these kids, you need more than just I don't like your politics as an excuse for calling someone a liar. Are the types of people, and friends of people, who profit off private prisons, also profiting off the supplies and construction of these tent camps, aka Trump camps, at the estimated cost of $775 per person per night, how is it anything other than wasteful government spending to to build these camps, or worse, some sort of corruption? And who is benefiting from that corruption? And how did they vote? What is their political patronage? Can Trump, could Trump, be trusted when he signed an executive order on June 20th to end family separations at the border? If so, then why was there no clear plan or process to reunite the families that had been separated? Why now, weeks later, and after a deadline was imposed by the court, has that process only, and I'm being generously with this choice of phrase, just barely begun. The quote that jumped into my mind when I was considering the fact that it's probably true that illegal immigration is if not maybe at a record low, but certainly lower than it has been historically and nowhere near the problem that's being advertised. Are we dusting crops where there ain't no crops here? Again, to quote North by Northwest, the Hitchcock film. I'm a big believer in not underestimating the impact of big numbers even big numbers that are getting smaller back in june 2011 i recorded a two-part inappropriate conversations on abortion and the second part of that two-part episode included some thoughts along these lines of what i described as numbers too impossibly large to be dismissed as small and true even if they're diminishing it's worth the time to go back and listen to 10 agreements about abortion, parts one and two, because I basically ask the question of even when you get down to taking the bait of the sort of quasi-moderate pro-life position of banning 97% of all abortions, the 3% you're left with is an impossibly large number. So it's possible that even if the numbers of people coming across the border illegally are currently being dwarfed by the numbers of people who are returning the other way, it still might be a large enough number that it's hard for people to handle, that we don't have the right kind of structures in place to deal with it. Having said that, genocide is the wrong way to send a message to the world, even a message like, stay the hell away. Did I say genocide? Well, what is the definition of that word? Included in the United Nations definition, it's forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. It is a form of genocide to steal someone's child, particularly for ethnic reasons. And it is therefore not adoption to give that child to someone else. And it is, of course, no better to place children as young as five, but also some many younger, into permanent perpetual state custody either. Have we so lost our minds That these questions don't seem insanely obvious to the extent of not being worth asking. And yet, many would bristle at the obvious answer. Anything to support their partisan prejudices. And that is true even if some of those prejudices have some or any genuine foundation. We are, it seems, arguing about whether it is okay to steal kids from their parents, lock all of them up separately, and lose the paperwork. We are arguing about whether that's okay. Shouldn't we just stipulate that it's not okay? And Silence is not the answer. Silence is assent. Years, or perhaps decades from now. There's going to be a lot of people who are silent right now that I know who will insist that they remember speaking up. My guess is that they will forget about how little they spoke and how much of it supported our president rather than common human decency. Their silence is empowering the worst behavior of our country in decades, and it isn't like we haven't done some very bad things across those decades. I've spoken before about not voting for Obama. I had my reasons. And targeting American citizens for assassination by drone was among those reasons. But this is worse. This is a form of genocide. One of the movies I enjoyed the most in the last couple of years... It was granted during a period of time that I wasn't seeing just a ton of movies, but The Big Sick was one of the ones I saw. And it's kind of the story of Kumail Nanjiani and his wife. Something he said here recently got me thinking about my personal social media guidelines. Which is basically, in a nutshell, I neither actively friend people, nor do I go on any unfriending. But Nanjiani asks this. If they can see pictures of children in cages and justify it in any way... They are gone. It is a waste of time and energy. Sometimes you have to cut people loose. Okay. I have friends within my circles who perhaps have been relieved that I no longer offer any words of counsel or correction to them. That I no longer challenge them when they are wrong. They should not be happy about being ignored right now. It is not a good sign. They are within. Just a whisker. A being. Cut loose. This is my struggle, and the struggle is real. I can't reach people if I cut myself off from them. But what if there's no hope of reaching the my facts are better than your facts crowd anyway? As I've noted here before, I've been taking insults for even trying to very politely provide facts and clarifications. Quoting someone, I believe on Twitter, named Ron Denbleicher. People say you shouldn't lose friends over politics, but hear me out. It is very okay, and in fact good, to lose friends who approve of keeping children captive in order to negotiate the building of large walls. It's okay to lose friends who approve of keeping children captive in cages in order to negotiate the building of large walls. Okay, finishing it up. Leaving the personal stuff behind, I have a set of questions that I also think people will delude themselves about in the future. What is MS-13? Do you know? When did you know? Who told you? How did you find out? Is this the latest boogeyman created by people who are far more invested in fear than faith, including, perhaps especially, the religious right? Has MS-13 been organizing for the purposes of foiling immigration laws? Does MS-13 pose fake fake families at the border? Is MS-13 taking over the border, our country, the world? Have you seen this? And how do you know? Has MS-13 generally or overwhelmingly targeted American citizens? Or immigrants preying on the most vulnerable within their own ethnic community? Do we have any reason to believe Trump's biased, fear-mongering approach and his track record with what we might generously call struggles with race relations, that he'll deal with a genuine gang problem effectively? You know, except the very first and last of this series of questions, these came from Hannah Dreyer at ProPublica on June 25th of this year, speaking from experience and telling us what she actually does know about MS-13, which is more than I will ever know, I believe about MS-13, and I think that for a lot of people that I've been interacting with, MS-13 is just this year's Ebola, just the next boogeyman to prop up to scare people into voting the way you want them to vote during midterm elections. If I've achieved my goal with this inappropriate conversations, somewhat ironically, it has been to reveal that I don't know much about illegal immigration and things like MS-13. Fair enough. Better to admit ignorance and ask questions then listen to lies and make horrible decisions from a confused set of false confidence. I do know a few things. Some you can't help but learn by merely asking such questions. With credit to a Colorado lawyer named Eric Pavary, Director of Family Immigration Services at Catholic Charities, and some friends of mine in the ministry. Here's what I know. If you have a family member who is a U.S. citizen, it still takes at least one year and up to 22 years before you can petition... For citizenship, presidents like Bush, both of the Bushes, and Obama have an unusually high consensus view about paths to citizenship that differ notably from Trump. Non-citizens who have no green card cannot receive benefits like Medicare, Medicaid, SSI disability, Social Security payments for seniors, food stamps, etc. They cannot receive such benefits. So every time someone someone talks about people coming over here and getting a free ride and getting their health care paid for, it's actually not true. What is it that they can get? Public education for K-12. through 12, Emergency room services to a degree. And the WIC program, which is basically milk and food for pregnant mothers. Along with the services of police and fire. So emergency services. Surely we don't want firefighters deciding which houses to put out in the midst of a massive inner-city blaze, right? That's not the right time to decide whether this building on fire, which could easily catch other buildings on fire, doesn't matter to us because illegal immigrants live there. Or even, in Trump's mind, legal immigrants. He's trying to change the reality for both legal and illegal immigration. And what about public education, Well, if we are going to have people living among us, we're better off if they've got an education. Likewise, if a child born in this country is going to be a a U.S. citizen, or at least have a path to citizenship, we might want to do what we can to make sure that's a healthy pregnancy. And as far as emergency room services go, it is still true today, despite the efforts of some libertarians, that doctors have an oath to first do no harm. If you show up at an emergency room, you're going to get emergency room services. Now, it's not going to get paid for by taxpayers like you and me. It's going to have to be paid for by either the person who came in and received those services from whatever salary they're making as an immigrant in this country, legal or otherwise. Or it's going to end up being part of the cost of future medical care by everybody else, just like all other indigent care provided in emergency rooms all over this country. So... We're not going to let people die on the street right outside the hospital because they don't have the right paperwork to get in and get emergency room care. We're not going to take future U.S. citizens who are unborn and enact some sort of twisted pro-life policy where they don't get prenatal care because the mom isn't a U.S. citizen. And we're not going to go down the Ceausescu path of making sure that we've got a whole bunch of disgruntled, uneducated teens living in our society That rather than incorporating them into at least the public education institutions, uh, we're instead going to create the gang problem that the Trump administration seems to suggest is already here. It can get worse. It can get worse if we change some of these policies. Among the things I don't know is I also don't know that our policies in Central America for decades, if not centuries now, hasn't led to the political and economic conditions that have fueled the legitimate fears of refugees coming here in the first place. What if U.S. international policies have created such hellish situations for people in their countries that their flight from those situations have led us to our very doorstep? Certainly, we own a little bit of that, even if it's only partly true. To that point, I'll cite one more meme that I think sums it up better than I have, kind of in closing. That meme says this. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has said, Asylum seekers are like criminals breaking into your house. No, no, no. The real analogy is more like this. Your neighbor's husband is shot and killed. She flees to your house with her baby. When she knocks, you call the police, have her arrested for trespassing, and she never sees her baby again. Because unlike your belt and your wallet, if you were arrested for anything whatsoever in this country... Your possessions would be returned to you the moment you were released on bail or served your term. Our law enforcement system would not be wringing its hands about how impossible it would be to reunite you with your car keys. But right now in the United States of America, our federal law enforcement apparatus is wringing its hands about how impossible it is to actually return children to the parents that we took them from. Because we perhaps had no intention of giving them back what the United Nations calls genocide, by the way, or we're just that incompetent. So I've got lots of questions, lots of questions, including what are we going to do about this situation? The apathy or the antagonism of those we've always believed we could trust, people who probably represent the very soul of our so-called Christian nation, if you believe the sort of the conventional quote-unquote wisdom about the Bible Belt, the very people who would consider me pathetic for even asking. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, and clearly I would welcome it, because I don't have all the answers. I'm not sure I even have all the questions, but it was worth an hour to try. I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. I'm active on Twitter. I'm at ic underscore greg there. Inappropriate Conversations has a Facebook page. It's listed as a cause, and most of what I have shared are questions that have arisen from stories and articles and, frankly, questions that have been raised online that I've shared on that Facebook page. Inappropriate Conversations also has a presence on SoundCloud. I use it as a way to provide a clip of past shows and give people an audio hint as to what the content of previous Inappropriate Conversations and even now the Walk the Earth podcasts have in them. For now, though,
1: Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.